Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. My name is Robin Messing. I'm a poet and a fiction writer. I've recently published my first novel titled Serpent in the Garden of Dreams. The book is comprised of two alternating narratives. One narrative chronicles a year in the adult life of Tildy, the main character. Her boyfriend has left her, and she is trying to come to terms with what seems like an unbearable loss. The second narrative spans a summer in Tildy's childhood, when her father leaves their Brooklyn apartment and lives around the corner, and her mother is obsessed with a married lover. I will read a childhood section of the book where 12-year-old Tildy has to leave her house for a designated amount of time so that her mother can be alone with her lover. Her father did not return. Her mother lay in bed all day under a mint-green sheet and floral blanket, though it was hot, and Tildy's armpits began to stink. There were two dark stains in the shape of deep bowls on her shirt below each arm a trail of change she could not extinguish. Her mother kept asking for ice, glass after glass. After a while, as narrow as it was, Tildy walked up and down the hallway to the kitchen with her eyes closed to see if she could make it all the way without touching the wall. She would try to make her body loose and numb, as if the hallway were a long chamber of no feeling where she could let her face drop to the floor, a corridor she wished wouldn't end so quickly. There was a bottle next to the bed, and her mother reached down and poured the golden liquid over the chinks of ice. The ice shrank quickly in front of them. Where is Dad? Tildy said. I don't know, her mother said. We will be fine without him. Better, actually. Can you see that? She licked her lips, painted with magenta lipstick, although she hadn't gotten dressed. Tildy nodded her head. Yes, she did see. They were better without him. In her mind, she imagined them freed of the Wizard of Oz, the man who scared them with his booming voice and blown-up face. For her mother, she could let go of anything. A few days after her father left, her mother had phoned her sister. They'd talked for an hour, Tildy's mother moving through a dance of emotions, quiet tearful, strident, at which time she sat up straight in her bed and pounded on the Talmud, which lay in the valley between her legs. She concluded with the phrases, I know what I'm doing, then Tildy is fine. But when she finished, she didn't hang up the receiver, instead stuck it up to her neck and sat with her head flopped over it, quiet, breathing audibly. When she raised her head finally, there were inflated patches under her mother's eyes. Tildy could not avoid the droop of one eyelid, the loosening of a lip, the trembling of the fingers of one hand, the twitch at the outside corner of the eye, the sinking of a torso into the waist. When her mother slipped, she could feel it, like one notch loosened on her watch band. "'Jim Price is coming,' her mother said. "'I have to dress.' He's coming here, 
Tildy said. Yes, here, silly bunny. Swish the brush in the toilet bowl, would you? Wipe the underside of the seat, too. If he goes, he'll lift it. Tildy did not want Jim's pee in her toilet. It was only for their pee. She did not want to clean it. She wanted him to lift the seat and see what all of them had done to it. But she did what her mother asked, ammonia exploding in her nose like a shout. When Tildy returned to her mother's room, she was standing before the mirror, stockings already pinned to her garter, wearing only a long white combination bra and girdle, her breasts pinched in a kiss and foaming above the brassiere. She added the last of her makeup, a wand of midnight blue mascara rolled underneath her lashes, then patted the puffs under her eyes lightly, as if to press unwanted air out of them. Again, she was transformed, taller, lighter, bustier, as if she had been just inflated with low-density gas. Soon she would rise, lighter than air, away from that place that was theirs. I have to choose a dress, she said. He'll be here very soon. She was at the closet, pulling out dresses in all the shades of sucking candy. Quickly, one was off the hanger, peach with flowers, over her head and zipped up the side. She slipped into sandals and turned once to see the skirt fan out like a parachute. I'm ready, almost ready, she said, lifting a toilet water bottle from her dresser and aiming its pin-dot spray just under her right earlobe. Once on each side, the crude scent attacked Tildy's nose like a germ for which she had no resistance. Immediately she began to sneeze in an explosive series. I swear you're allergic to my toilet water, her mother laughed. Sit down, Tulip. We have to talk. She patted the bed of twisted bed things. Tildy sat there. You'll have to leave, she said. Once Jim is here for a while, you go out for an hour. You can go to Belinda's house or just stay on the block. I'll give you a sign. I'll come up to you and kiss you, once on each cheek. Jim will never know our trick. She held Tildy tightly. Tildy was hot and cold, yielding to her warm embrace, not wanting to let go, resisting her too, thinking, it's just an hour, we'll be together in an hour. Jim came up the stairs in a lope, more like Kenny than her father, who was heavy-footed, who always unknotted his tie with one hand before he got up the flight. He handed a cold brown bag of ice cream to Tildy, and she passed it quickly to her mother as if it were hot. Tildy followed Jim and her mother down the hall to the dining room, where Jim pulled out a chair and sat, crossed one foot, making a wide triangle over his other knee, slid back and loosened his tie. He drummed his fingers, long with carefully clipped nails, on the tablecloth to a silent song, a polka or a jig. Tildy's mother placed a large glass of ice water on the table in front of him. She was smiling and two-stepping to the same music as his fingers. She pulled out a chair, too, sat straight and fidgety, 
blinked her eyes incessantly as she spoke, in no time jumped up and kissed Tildy once on each cheek, where she stood with her arms crossed by the window, looking out at the landlord's small dog pacing agitatedly across the backyard pavement on a long chain. "'I think I'll go out,' Tildy said, looking at her watch and memorizing the time. "'I just had the idea that I'll go out,' she said. She turned on her heel, bowed her head, and felt a tick pulse at the right crease of her lip, was out of there before Jim's goodbye reached the ceiling, tumbling down the stairs, tipsy with their trick, almost tripping on her own feet, happy to be away from Jim, happy and lonely, and out in the heavy air. This was the feeling that would not leave her, not through many years, many houses, many streets, the solitary longing for something treasured she'd just lost, a sudden lonely exile that jumped at her, unexpected, when moments before she'd felt a part of something she loved. The feeling became part of the small trees, the parked cars, the still houses of wood and bricks, the asphalt, the dead-end sign at the end of the block, the pebbled sidewalks. Even the spots where Kenny's and her initials were etched in the new flat cement, the gray stone steps. It was there at the drawn blinds and shades, in the expressionless face of the old man across the street, who sat speechless from a stroke on his tiny brick porch. Everything spoke of her expulsion, of her unworthiness to be part of what she wanted more than anything. Tildy did not walk down the block to Belinda's house, she called her Billy, because she did not want to do the things they usually did. Jack's, pensy-pinky games, scary walks through the alleys beside the houses, rock pitching onto the abandoned tracks at the end of the block, dead bird hunting and grave-making, chalk pictures on the blacktop road, jump rope. She couldn't talk to Billy, and when Billy talked, it was about game rules, baseball, TV, and schemes like pricking their fingers with needles and exchanging blood. Billy was a doer, an adventurer, and right then, Tildy had too much adventure in her own head. Billy didn't have time for thinking or wondering. She had the world to conquer. She spoke with her body, poking it into dark corners Tildy wouldn't think of investigating on her own, challenging boys to games of running bases and dodgeball against opposing garage doors. Tildy walked up and down the block, kicking pebbles, chewing on a piece of juicy fruit gum she'd stuck in her pocket, running her hands along the hedges at the corner. It was as if she were in another state of semi-living, waiting until her mother was finished so she could live again, so her life as she knew it could resume. It was only a matter of time and patience. These things she had, these things she could make happen. In her head, she sang the Mickey Mouse song and Harry Belafonte's Deo. She thought about how she'd dip pecan sandies in milk when she got home, how she'd drink the cold milk slowly, and when she got to the bottom, taste the grainy cookie crumbs on her tongue. She'd brought her new pensy pinky with its vibrant spring, bouncing it as she walked. The ball came back so easily it sometimes hit her neck or flew over her head and down the street where she chased after it. Your mother and my mother were hanging out close. 
Your mother punched my mother right in the nose. A, my name is Allison. I come from Alabama. My husband's name is Alfred, and we sell apricots. Up and down the block she strode, following the ball, loping sometimes to get to it in time to catch it. Sweat collected on her neck and forehead in beaded sheets. Shades and blinds were pulled to keep out the sun. The women and their men who were home on their day off from work stayed indoors, hoarding the last bits of cool air that lingered from the night before. Alone on the street, the bounce of the ball seemed the only sound to cut through the heat. It was the only flying form beside the flitting sparrows. Tildy reached the corner house whose lawn wrapped around two streets. There, two sprinklers flipped back and forth, the multi-pronged sprays licking the two sidewalks. She ran around the vortex of the corner just as the water fell to the street, sprinkling her with its tingling needles, then back again on its rebound. It was on the return trip, almost slipping on the muddy border of grass beside the curb, that she bumped into her father. He held her by her shoulders. She stiffened in wide-eyed shock, half believing he was a stranger. Even a week's absence can winch a gully of otherness between two people who know each other's minutest gestures. She looked down at his hairy legs jutting out of Bermuda shorts, ending in brown nylon socks and tie shoes. They were the mismatched clothes of a stranger. He must have gone home for more things, she thought. He had been gone a little more than a week, and though her mother talked about changing the locks, she hadn't done it. She had barely ventured away from the house in that time. They'd been living off canned food, franks and beans, wagon wheels and sauce, Campbell soups, frozen dinners, and whatever Kenny could carry in one hand when he biked home from Wallbaum's. "'What are you doing?' her father said, his cheeks and chin a prickly shadow, his lips two faded pencil trails. "'Nothing,' Tildy said. "'Where's Belinda?' he said. "'Don't know.' He let go of her, and they stood apart, eyeing each other like exhausted opponents at the end of a long boxing match. "'I wanted to see you,' he said. "'I thought you'd be on the street.' jumping rope. It's too hot. I wanted to leave a note. She looked at him. He wasn't looking at her, but down the street, a stony glare. I wanted to tell you I was leaving. There wasn't time. She felt herself leaning toward him, sinking like her mother when she was sick or tired. He was nice now, but any minute he might turn and she had to keep track of the time. She couldn't get distracted from it. She wouldn't give her mother any more time than she'd said. Where'd you go? Tildy said. I'm living around the block, he said, in the furnished walk-ups near the train station. Are you eating? Yep. The hookers stand on that corner, high boots, tight sweaters, breasts in pointy bras. "'What's your mother doing?' he said. "'Right now?' she said. "'Yeah, right now.' "'I'm not sure,' she said. 
Does she know you're here? Yep, she knows. She's brainwashed you, but you're just a kid. You don't know anything. He pulled a pack of cigarettes out of his white shirt pocket, struck a match he got from its cellophane sleeve, lit up and inhaled deeply. Tildy backed away from the tide of smoke that poured from his mouth and nostrils. The tips of the fingers on his right hand were brown from holding the cigarettes until they disintegrated. It made her mad how he said she didn't know anything. She knew everything. Is your mother awake? No, she said. I think she's sleeping. She's a little sick. Sick like she's always sick, he said. Sick in the head. She didn't want to listen to him talk about her. No, really. It's like the flu, she said. She looked up at the roof of the three-family house across the street, then down to its impenetrable windows. She had never lied outright, and she felt awkward inside it, like stalking around in her mother's pointy-toed high heels that were dyed aqua to match a bar mitzvah dress. You might catch it, she said, if you go there. What makes you think I'm going there? You're a funny kid. How's your brother? Okay. Come here, he said. He dropped his cigarette and ground it with his shoe, seemed to shrink as he pushed his foot down, then pulled her close and hard, her cheek flattened on his chest, one of the buttons of his shirt stamping its impression on her temple. She counted one to six, a wash in his shirt's detergent and insidious leftover smoke, until he pulled her away and looked at her with a face skewered by unnamed rages. She couldn't tell if he might yell at her for an offense she was unaware she'd committed, like his jabs of careless or stupid when she'd cleared the table in five inefficient trips instead of two, or spilled her tomato juice or forgot to double-lock the apartment door, or if he'd just turn on his worn heel and leave without a closing word. But he touched her hair, then her cheek, and she wished he hadn't, because it almost hurt. Something about it made her wince, hating it and wanting it, wanting it and hating it, wondering if anyone was watching how his long fingers shook on her cheek, imagining that he'd be there in the house instead of Jim, because it didn't matter that he slept on the couch all night in his billowing underwear, or that he groaned or snored or screamed, because her mother was there to comfort her. Her head ached, thinking so much, all in the minute he had his hand on her face, his pulsating hand that was very warm, his long fingers reaching past her ears, making her think things that cancelled each other out until she was solid and numb and dizzy. You're sweaty. Get your brother to fix the big fan from the attic, he said. Hear what I said? I better go. You'll hear from me. She watched him walk back toward the train station until she couldn't distinguish his bare shins from his sweat-stained plaid shirt.
To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, please visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.